Welcome back to Strike Talk. In November of 1863, in the midst of a bloody civil war, Abraham Lincoln made the single worst prediction of his famed presidency. While delivering the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln said, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. This was midpoint in the most famous political speech ever given, remembered by the world forever. History is funny that way. It's hard to predict what will stick. Execs at Warner Brothers once saw their movie Slumdog Millionaire and declared it such a disaster that they wanted to send it straight to home video, but it won Best Picture. In 1899, the head of the U.S. Patent Office offered to resign because everything that could be invented had been invented. Hitler thought that his rise would herald the 1,000-year Reich of the Nazi party. Donald Trump predicted that a new virus called COVID would magically disappear. And some casting person somewhere once said to Kevin Sorbo, kid, you can act. It is very difficult in the midst of a political current to see its place in the future with any certainty. But the WGA has been pretty remarkable in this regard. Before the Guild's formation, screenwriters were at the mercy of studio bosses. If a studio boss wanted to give his girlfriend writing credit on a movie, she got it. Writers suffered financial injustices that were appalling and no one knew what to do about it. They were all independent contractors. In real ways, they were each other's competition, but they knew that if they didn't organize and demand their rights, writers would suffer for generations. In 1936, they founded the Screenwriters Guild. In 1941, they finally were allowed to bargain collectively with the studios, and they won minimums and control over determining credits in a movie, a big first. In 1953, as television was beginning to explode in popularity and profit, the Guild had a sense the TV was here to stay, and that protections on that format were going to be important right again. It took a 13-week strike, but that year the Guild won residuals for TV reruns, control of writing credits in TV, minimums for that format, and sequel payments for creators. In 1960, the Guild saw movies being run on TV with zero compensation to the writers of those movies and demanded a residual. The Guild also saw the need for a health plan and how much a pension plan would matter to future writers. We sought it all, all at once. The company said, fuck off, that will break us. Hence a 22 week strike, but the Guild had been right again and the Guild won. In 1973, the Guild saw a thing called home video coming. It struck for a piece of video cassettes and won it. In 1981, it was a battle over a new future thing called cable television. The AMPTP said, let's see what this turns into. Then we'll decide how much to give to you. The Guild correctly knew this was folly. So out we went and we won. In 2007, the Guild saw streaming on the horizon and decided, again, accurately, that its impact would be historic. We demanded jurisdiction over it. The company said we were entitled to zero participation in streaming, so we struck and we won. Each time, the Guild's sense of where history was headed proved correct, which is why we never went on strike over Laserdiscs or Quibi. Now we are in the midst of a great battle over pay, mini rooms, AI, and abuses impacting the very viability of writing as a profession. And once again, we are forced to pick it. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, just as generations of writers have done before us. Because each of us knows, as the companies know, that we have reached an inflection point in the history of our business. If we accept the deal now before us, if we swallow mini rooms and AI and a non-livable wage, then our collective income will shrink, our pension and health plans will vanish, and our guild itself will cease to exist. And once that happens, our entire industry will either collapse entirely or it will transition into a miasma of AI-written shows voiced by AI actors greenlit by AI itself. 
Yes, we are trying to save the business from the very people who own it. I hate being on strike. I hate not making things and walking in circles with a stick. But every writer that preceded me in this guild walked those same circles for me. The things they fought for have meaningfully improved my life because they saw history coming. That's what this fight is about. Our sacrifice for the storytellers who will follow us, saving their future. It is requiring of us the same kind of increased devotion that Lincoln spoke of in that speech he thought the world would little note nor long remember. And it is asking that we here become highly resolved, that the sacrifices of the writers who struggled before us shall not have been in vain, and that this guild of the writers, for the writers, and by the writers shall not perish from the earth. Joining us today are three such writers, all members of the Guild's Negotiating Committee, Daniel Sanchez Witzel, Yalin Chang, and John August. We're also joined by the esteemed Franklin Leonard, creator of The Blacklist, producer, and a true force of good in our industry. Welcome to you all. As this strike nears its 50-day point, what have we learned? Danielle, I'll start with you. You know, I think it, it, it's for those of us that went through the 2007-8 strike, it's hard to not compare, you know, to kind of say, okay, where were we then? Where are we now? And I think something that we've learned is that we're a completely different guild in the sense of our membership is, you know, I've really enjoyed um, talking to writers, being on the picket line. I've not enjoyed walking in a circle, carrying a stick, um, just like you, Billy. But, you know, I, I think that there's a real sense of the, the power of the people of our member, you know, of our membership. It just feels different than it did. Um, 15 years ago. And what I've learned is how powerful we are um, top to bottom all the way through, you know, that that there just is a lot of um, energy. And I've kind of taken to the phrase, I believe in us believing in us. And I, you know, I really, I really feel that on the lines, we've had community pickets and theme pickets and things that just weren't available to us 15 years ago, maybe because we didn't have social media, um, or maybe because we just the membership wasn't as um, beautifully diverse as it is now. So that's definitely something that I feel going into day 50. Um, and I'm feeling good. And I hate being on strike too, but I'm feeling good about who is out there walking together. Yalin, what's your take? I've been shocked by sort of this ground up swell and how kind of militant and I don't know, excited and, um, and passionate people have been about this cause. I think sometimes when you're a leader, you think, oh, you have to convince people, you have to drag people along with you. And it turns out that there was no persuading really that needed to be done, that everybody was right there with us because we were, you know, describing for them the situations that they're living. The other difference between 07 and now is that um, writers are just, they're living like much closer to their subsistence levels. It's like writers are just much poorer now than they were before. And they are really facing such um, an existential crisis and, you know, having to take second jobs and, you know, and having to move out of town. And so just writers in general are, are, are suffering so much more than they did before. And I really loved what you said, Billy, about the, um, about our ability to see the future. And I think that it is very important that we are probably one of the first unions to really take on this AI fight. And we're very well positioned to do it. We are a union of like, you know, generally very educated, intelligent 
people. And so we see the future coming and we also, our job is to imagine new worlds and imagine worst case scenarios. I think we're really good at that, which is one of the reasons why we're ahead and we're kind of leading this charge. John, how are you feeling 50 days in? Is this your third strike or your second? This is my second strike. So I was, uh, like all of us, I have this memory of the 2007, 2008 strike. And because strikes happen so infrequently, we tend to over-index based on our experience of the last strike. And we tend to think like, oh, it'll be like that with some small differences around the edges. And I think what Danielle and Yalin have been saying is so true is that this feels very, very different. Uh, 50 days into the last strike, it was it was also winter. It was. It felt depressing. You felt this, this sort of growing tension. Like we have to get this done. We have to get this figured out. Um, here we still feel like we have to get this done. We have to get this figured out. But this, the pressure is because we know we need to make a, a much better deal for all of us. There's not this like let's cut a deal. It's more like let's actually tackle the problems that we described months ago uh, that we argued about in the room all through negotiations. And that the day one of picketing. The signs were correct because everyone was feeling the the same issues, the same things. Um, a couple reasons why I think it is so different this time. Uh, Danielle said our membership is different. Our membership is younger. It's more, more engaged. It's more political than it's ever been before. Um, it's more unified. Um, I think the the classic divides between a screenwriter and a TV writer have completely blurred away. Um, East and West has really blurred away as well. People live on both coasts. We have a much better bigger understanding of the comedy variety, life, and sort of the struggles that are facing here, um, largely because we're all facing the same pressures. We're facing this pressure of streaming, pushing us to, you know, a career that is no longer sustainable. So there's, you know, it just feels so different than I would have guessed, you know, on day one, uh, now that we're 50 days in. And uh, so we cannot predict the future, but I know that um, the same issues that were on that two-page document that, you know, we distributed on uh, as we close up negotiations, those are still the same issues and they still resonate with our entire membership. Okay, so Franklin, I don't know that I can think of anybody who's done more to bring unknown writers to the fore than you. Um, you must have a unique perspective on this work stoppage. What did you feel about it on May 2nd and has that feeling changed at all as we sit down today? I mean, first of all, thank you for including me uh, among uh, such esteemed guests uh, okay. who are writers. And I, I must admit that I always feel a little bit insecure sort of being the, the non-writer who's usually been on the other side of the table as a producer or a studio exec for that matter. The only thing I would say is um, producers are not on the other side of the table with us at this point. Producers are very much our partners in this fight. It's the companies. I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that I've learned is the extent to which um, everyone's kind of on the writer's side on this one. Um, even among my peers who work at the studios, the their personal, you know, and I'm not going to name names, obviously, but their personal sort of assessment of the situation is that the writers are on the, the right side of history here. And one of the things that I'm fascinated by is, is just how high you have to go in the corporate sort of hierarchy of these companies to find people who actually do back the AMPT position and can even attempt an argument in defense of it. And I've yet to find anyone, and I, I think I've said this publicly on Twitter, like I'm open to the debate. Someone please make the argument for the AMPTP position that will result in 
better movies in television, more profitable movies in television, and a better Hollywood for everybody. Because that is fundamentally the WGA's position. If we do this, this is the bounty we get. So I, I think, look, but that really just confirms an instinct that I already had. And I think that that's been really my takeaway from the first 50 days is, is one that there's a great deal of solidarity within the guild at all levels. There's a great deal of solidarity beyond the guild in, in places that people might not even expect. And that there's a general incompetence at the top levels of most of these companies that really comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of capitalism, a fundamental misunderstanding of making film and television for a global audience, what that is and why it matters, and, and the sources of value within that ecosystem. Like my biggest frustration is, is less sort of political than it is, I want a better Hollywood. I want more movies and television selfishly for myself to watch. I want those movies to be pro movies and television to be profitable. I want that money to be shared in a sustainable way so that all of us can continue to do that. And the AMPTV's position seems pretty clearly antithetical to that reality. It, it generally is. It generally has been. And they generally give it up, which is why the, the guild's batting average in work stoppages is so incredibly high. This is the other thing I've learned. The WGA and its members are a lot more sophisticated about technology than the studios are. It has been fascinating, you know, watching how the Guild and its members have organized. You know, we mentioned the theme pickets. We mentioned sort of how you're moving people from place to place to stop production, right? Like you would think that the studios with all of their technological, all their technology and their resources might be able to win that battle. And it seems pretty clear right now that the Guild has the upper hand. And that's because of the sophistication and intelligence of the members specifically with regard to technology, ironically enough. I've been here through three of these and, and for the first time ever, I see the media completely on the side of the writers. Every newspaper reporter that I talk to when I'm walking the lines at Fox, they all know that what's happening to writers in show business is happening to writers in the newspaper business. They all know it. Um, same thing with reporters on radio. They have a very vested interest in, in our success. I see much more support from sister guilds and unions. The biggest difference to me, and it just happened two weeks ago, is that in 2007, 2008, when the DGA went in against our wishes and negotiated a deal, um, the second that deal was done, the strike was done. Everybody in the guild said, just take the DGA deal. And that was it. The strike, the, this, we got what we could. Um, DJ deal has been a matter of public record now for two weeks. I've never heard anybody on the, on the picket line say, oh, let's just do that. Let's take okay. that deal and put our, our pickets down. There's zero appetite out there for that. And if you took the same strike authorization vote that was taken before the strike, I think the numbers might actually be higher and not lower. That's a, a huge difference that I cannot believe Carol Lombardini saw coming. Any of that ring true to the four of you? I mean, yeah, it, absolutely. You know, I think we're out there. So as members of the negotiating committee and our members of our board, we are trying to make sure that there's, you know, one of us at most of the pickets, you know, we were splitting up, uh, you know, so we can talk to members. And I think I've certainly fielded questions about, you know, what does this mean? And certainly AI, you know, I think what's clear is that some people really understand it. And then some of us don't, I'll put myself in the don't, but I've learned so much from people like John and so grateful, you know, that they're on the committee because I think we really do have a firm handle on it. But I, I think that there is, you know, um, that 
that thing that I remember happening, I was on staff, I, you know, 15 years ago, I just walked off, the, I wanted to go back to work, everyone wanted to go back to work, you know, I, I think now people are, as Yalen was saying, you know, working at other jobs and having to support themselves other ways. So the idea that somebody else took a deal, let's use that to fix ourselves isn't even in the vocabulary for a lot of our writers. Um, and it, yeah, so it, it, it absolutely, I mean, I, I think there have been questions because look, we're on strike. So anytime something happens, people want to dissect it and talk about it and figure it out. But I have not talked to, and the many people I've talked to on the picket lines, I have talked to nobody um, who who said, do we want that? <laughs> you know, it's more, the, the biggest question I've gotten is if their deal um, it, it expires June 30th, why did they make a deal in early June, which I'm not a DGA member. I, so I, you know, that's, and I'm not part of DGA leadership, but that's the question I have gotten the most from members on the picket line. Maybe you guys can talk about why the DGA deal is not enough. And that takes us back to a, a foundational question, which is we live in very much a, a scoreboard culture. Mm -hmm. So people outside the business, um, you know, your aunt in Minnesota will send you an email saying, who's winning the strike? Um, as, if, as if there is someone winning the strike at this moment, yeah. as opposed to, to me, the more important question, why are we on strike? What were the issues that made us have to put our pens down? Um, so that we can remind people who are walking in those circles with a stick um, that those issues have not gone away. So can we talk about that in the context of the DGA deal? What's in there that could be useful to us? Because we have said on this show, there are some, uh, some gains in there that are meaningful uh, that might pattern to us, but what's not in there? Why can't we just take the DGA deal? And any of you can fire away on this one. I think one of the reasons why we haven't heard members on the picket line talking about, oh, let's take the DGA deal is we really communicated very clearly and early about uh, the fact that the DGA going in to negotiate their contract, you know, that they may have some gains which would pattern, but most of what they were going to be looking for didn't match up to what we needed. They, they weren't talking about the scourge of many rooms. They weren't talking about uh, the very specific AI concerns we have about our literary material and our uh, source material concerns. Um, they weren't talking about the, the real um, bread and butter concerns that our members were going to have. And so that no matter if they got the most fantastic deal in the world, it would be great for them. It would be very, very happy for them, but it wasn't going to be a kind of thing that was going to change our needs and our demands. Um, you know, the process for folks who don't know the Doge process for going into negotiations is we survey all of our members. And so we get results back from all of our members. We spend months going through those, figuring out what the real issues are. That becomes our pattern of demands, which our membership votes on. So they're getting an early view of like, oh, this is what we're going to be talking about. We have a tremendous number of, of member meetings where we're talking about these are the things we're focusing on going into these negotiations. Obviously, uh, so we took a strike authorization vote after we started the negotiations. So our members really knew what it was that we were fighting for. And when on, you know, we reached the end of negotiations, didn't have a deal, we could give them a one page back in front that showed this is exactly where we were. This is what we were trying to get to. This is what they offered and became really clear. These are still the same issues out there. So um, our members could see that the DGA was going in there and negotiating their own deal. But when they came back with what they came back with, it didn't it didn't change anything for our members. Um, it, just, it was still focused on what do we need and how do we get what we need in this deal. And Franklin, because you are not on the negotiating committee, 
you speak to yeah. a, a variety of people that'll, that will be wider than most writers speak to. You speak to directors, you speak to, as you said, studio executives, you speak to agents and, and producers. What is the sense uh, out there in the world about what the DGA got? Um, as I've, I've mentioned on this podcast a couple of times, um, I think they used the word historic three times in their press release. Clearly no one in the WGA thought that it was historic. What do people think about the DGA deal out there in non-writer circles? And has that definition shifted over the course of the last two weeks? I think if I'm honest, I think most people expected the DGA to make a deal. Um, and that whatever the deal was, it would be characterized as historic, no matter how not historic it was. Um, and that that's largely spin. So I don't think that most people are surprised by the sequence of those events and how they're being characterized. I don't think that anybody thinks that that deal protects artists or protects Hollywood uh, in the way that it needs to be protected, given the realities um, of the shifts that are likely coming vis-a-vis -vis technology, vis-a-vis -vis compensation, et cetera, uh, for the future. Um, again, I, I have not read the deal in, in full, so I don't feel particularly qualified to like speak on it specifically, but my sense is, is that the deal feels insufficient given the reality of the things that are coming both for for directors for and also if you were to pattern match that to writers and actors it, it feels insufficient on on most fronts um but that it, i don't think it's anybody's surprise that a deal was made or that it's being characterized as historic regardless of the actual substance which i don't think most people have dug into yalin you certainly have dug into it to the extent that it's available what in the dga deal surprised you and what in the dga deal disappointed you I was going to say to your first question that the DGA deal, a lot of it is not, it doesn't address the abuses that writers have suffered over the last decade, you know? So in that way, it wasn't really relevant to us. You know, I mean, they, um, the companies like over the last decade, you know, in this oft-repeated statistic, which is very telling, with writers wages going down 23% while TV right while, while TV episodic budgets have doubled over the past decade we've seen that the companies are happy to throw a lot of money into filmed entertainment they just don't want to pay the people who are the architects of it the people who are responsible for it you know so what ha what has happened is that the companies have really put the screws to us writers specifically and the DGA deal does not um, just doesn't address it. And I think the other sort of really big mistake that the companies have made over the last decade is that they're taking, they, they, they're trying to destroy the writer's room and they're taking away um, what we are used to having and what we need to have in order to make good TV shows or to make good TV shows great. You know, and, you know, the companies that are degrading our wages and working conditions don't really have filmmaking in their blood and television show making in their blood. So they don't fundamentally understand what we need and what we've had in the past. And I think it is a terrible mistake in general to take things away from people. So you can't, you know, we, a lot of us grew up in the writer's rooms. That was our first big break. You know, don't take that away from us. That doesn't make any sense. And you can't really make a great TV show without one most of the time. It's one of the things that uh, we've commented on a lot on this podcast. It's a mantra for me. 
uh, as, as messaging goes, that this strike is not about fairness. Um, most people in the world feel that they are treated unfairly. This strike is about survival. It, it's about mm -hmm. extinction. It's about whether or not there's going to be um, a group of people that call themselves writers in 10 years from now. And again, it's that ability or that requirement that we look down the road 10 years from now. Let's, if we're going to talk about survival and extinction, let's talk about AI. The reason why the WJ wants to make our deal in AI is because our language is so uh, clear, so consistent, so understandable that you know, material generated by AI cannot be count considered literary material, the things that Danielle Yelly and I write, um, and it's not source material, so it's not going to be the basis of something. It keeps us from being um, from rewriting you know, shitty AI scripts and protects us from having our stuff it fed into the machine to generate a new version of the same stuff that we're doing. By focusing on the material and rather than the, the person doing the, the work, uh, it's just much cleaner for us to really you know, focus on this is what is the existential threat for us, is that um, we are people who uh, string words together in ways that you know, move people emotionally. We want those done with a purpose and an artistic vision, and that's just never going to happen with these AI models. Look, AI's existence is not something we're going to be able to stop. It, it can be a tool that writers can use, but the notion of replacing writers is where we get into real trouble. Um, and I think that's the real worry. The other thing I'd add is, you know, I don't know, when I talk to my friends from home in West Central Georgia, I don't know that they care, to be frank, whether screenwriters as a job continue to exist. Um, and, and look, that might be a failure of theirs, but they have their own problems that they're more focused on as to whether or not screenwriting is a profession. The way that I try to communicate to them about why they want the guild to win this fight is, do you want good movies and TV or not? Because you're not going to get the best versions mm -hmm. of the things that you enjoy if it is replaced in the main by AI or if this community of folks that from all, at all levels, from the lowest level to the highest level, continues to exist in a sustainable way. You need writers to be the lowest writer in a writer's room to learn how to make film and television, to continue to develop their craft, to be able to afford to have lives that inform their own human experiences so that they can then go write about them and create something like Succession. Jesse Armstrong didn't you know, pop up out of nowhere writing that he wrote on a bunch of comedy shows that most of most people would think of as very frivolous and and not quote unquote great art. And so, unless you have that development uh, feature, you're and, and the ability to develop people in a sort of long term way, mm -hmm. you are never going to have the things that you love watching. And so, whether screenwriters exist, you may not care, but whether the things you love exist. That's the stakes for most people. Um, and I think, you know, again, unless you're a CEO of one of the members of the AMPTP, that's what writers are fighting for. If you're a stakeholder in these companies and you want them to be financially successful, if you own stock in an AMPTP member, side with the writers because you want better financial outcomes long term and you want better movies and television for you to be able to watch with, you know, alone or with your family. So let me give you a slightly different take. Um, on AI is something that I think about a lot. And as mentioned once mm -hmm. uh, or twice on this show, since 1980, $50 trillion in the American economy has moved from the bottom 90% of us to the richest 1% of us, $50 trillion. It's the greatest uh, migration of wealth in human history. And it's happened under Democrat presidents, under Republican presidents, 
it just sort of is where America is going. And it's the result of laws written by lobbyists and stock buybacks and just out and out corruption. But the point is, the system seems to be designed so that the richest 1% just keep getting richer. Okay. Mm. I have two questions about that. One, have you ever seen any evidence that that richest 1% is going to take that massive amount of wealth and feed it back into the economy in a way that benefits the other 99% of us? And if no, then doesn't it alarm you that AI could be in the hands of that richest 1%? I think the struggle here is about the idea that if there's AI on final draft and writers want to use it as a tool to somehow get themselves out of a writing jam, I'm okay with it. I can't imagine ever doing it, but I'm okay with it. What I don't want is the CEOs of Netflix, Apple, Amazon, Warner Brothers, Comcast, Sony, Paramount. I don't want them in charge of that particular piece of technology. That Those richest 1%, mm -hmm. I've seen no evidence that they would use that as a tool for good. And that's why the guardrails have to be placed on it. So the question I ask is, did the DGA deal provide that protection so that the artist is in charge of the technology? I mean, as, as someone as someone who spent a lot of time picketing at Amazon, it's a really, it's a, you know, I think your framing is really interesting. And I, and I tend to agree with what is the greatest fear about it. I'm thinking about Jeff Bezos as I'm looping around that place going, think, look what happened in such a short amount of time in our lifetime. You know, Jeff, Jeff Bezos, it started out as books. It, it's taken over everything, you know, everything. And I've symbolically, you know, canceled all of my subscriptions and stopped using Amazon. And it's amazing how much Amazon has affected the world, you know, our country, but the whole world. And so I think about how those warehouse workers are being treated and how those drivers are being treated as I'm looping Amazon and thinking about where, you know, I think sometimes writers aren't necessarily seen as labor. But if you ever need a reality check of being labor, it's walking on a picket line for 50 days and 100 days previously and the you know five months and the one you first did, Billy. And it's, you know, we are, um, that that is that is what, you know, that is what we do. And it's craft and it's art and it's creative. And I'm proud to, you know, do all of those things as a living. But it, it you know, it's certainly just thinking about Jeff Bezos, I think speaks to what you're saying of the of what what could be what could be the greatest harm to society and to and to working people and to a middle class. You know, I mean, it is that is the the I think you're 100 percent right. That's that's the most harmful, scariest. Even though I'm a product of watching TV and movies growing up, I think the robots could get a conscience, John. I think they could take over. I think they could feel. Um, and take us all over, but that's just because of you know '80s movies. I do, you know, I do think that the real is wealth. The real is wealth, and the real is using AI uh, to to get richer, to control labor. Um, yeah, it's 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 very um, scary, very scary. Which moves us into a conversation about SAG, because to me, the biggest wild card here is what happens in the SAG negotiation. And I have no prediction one way or the other. I could easily see it going either way. But I do know that while SAG always needs help shoring up its pension and health plans, um, and that, that is always an issue, you know, you've got a guild with 170,000 members and, and 13 different divisions of actors. And we'll go into that when we do a separate show about SAG. But they have more reason to be afraid of AI than we do. AI, as was discussed, 
on this previous episode, AI can imitate any actor in the world, which leads me to ask you, Yalin, as SAG is negotiating, what are you looking for to come out of that deal? And does it matter to the WGA whether or not SAG goes out on uh, July 1st? I mean, I hope that SAG makes a deal that is good for them. And they, and you're exactly right that they are, they're already being replaced in, you know, doing ADR. And I mean, off of what you were saying before about the, you know, crazy income inequality in our country, it is so crazy that they're just, they just keep squeezing and squeezing labor. At this point, we really don't cost that much. I was talking to a TV accountant who was working on a, you know, $20 million an episode show who was saying that the writing budget is 0.59% of the overall budget mm. of the show. And so it just seems it is unconscionable that the companies would look at that and go like, ooh, how do we take that 0.59% and make it 0.3%? You know, it's like, what are you doing? You know, it's so crazy and um and unfair, as well as an existential issue for us. You know, if I could sort of bring up two really bright spots that have happened in this past 50 days, which I don't think we would have necessarily expected, um, is that first off, both with the DGA and with SAG, you see just tremendous member engagement that you've never seen before in the history of these organizations, at least it's that we've been around. So, you know, DGA, it's the first time I ever saw members really speaking up and saying like, hey, we, we want you to pay attention to these issues and the DGA having to respond to it, which is great. And because we, we, we want these to be democratic organizations that are really led by their members. Um, the SAG strike authorization vote is genuinely unprecedented, 40 years or something since we've done one of those. And that's great to see. And so I think active engaged union membership is a great thing, you know, in, for the WGA and for you know, the country as a whole. The other thing which I was really excited to see, which, you know, Danielle Yellen and I can t- t- testify, and Bill, you've been in the room there too. When we've been in the negotiation room, we have our caucus room. We talk through our issues. We really have no idea what happens in the other room. We don't know how they reach their decisions. We don't know who, who's really sort of pulling the strings there. And at this negotiation particularly, we had very different people on the other side of the table. We had these big tech companies. We had Apple. We had Amazon. It wasn't clear as we left the room on May 1st could they even come to a consensus? Could they even like figure out how to make a deal? So the fact that they were able to negotiate with DJ and make a deal, which was probably difficult for AMPTP, does indicate that they actually do have the ability to reach some consensus to, to be able to, to do something, which is good news, honestly, because it means that we can actually figure out how to reach a deal when we ever get back in the room with them and start negotiating again. Because that was a real sort of unspoken concern for me. It's like, can they even figure out how they're going to, you know, come to a consensus. And I guess they were able to. That is encouraging. I've long believed that writers are much less of a threat to Warner Brothers than Mm. Apple and Amazon are. Writers are not trying to put Warner Brothers out of business. In fact, writers need Warner Brothers to thrive in order for us to survive. Whereas Apple and Amazon would be much happier in a world in which there was no such thing as, as Warner Discovery. So even AI admitted that it is a false construct over there, um, that the ANPTP is, is an odd collection of competitors who are vying for market share with one another and yet get together every three years because the one thing they all agree on is they want to pay writers less, um, which seems pretty insane to me, but that does seem to be where they're going. One of the things that Chris Kaiser talks about quite a bit, and I think it's a point 
that the companies didn't anticipate is that they actually prepared the guild for the deprivations of a strike because they made writing such a subsistence level piece of business that writers aren't finding that significant a drop-off between where they were when they were working and where they are now. The last time that I was the, the co-chair, we were horrified. I mean, horrified to report to our membership that 33% of uh, guild writers working in television were working at scale. And that's why we got a giant strike authorization vote because 33%, my God, that's horrible. Well, that number is now 50%. 50% of, of writers working in television are working at scale. We have writers who are working on short seasons, on these, in many rooms on short seasons, who are you know, stringing together, hopefully, you know, two or three or four of these over the course of, of a year, but there can be giant gaps between them. So like this strike is, you know, we're at 50 days. That's not unusual for a writer to be unemployed um, now in the current way that we're making television. You and I were also both working as screenwriters. You and I know that you can go quite a long time between those jobs. Like 50 days for me to get notes back on a draft is not unusual. I, I, that was the joke I was going to make, yeah. I just made a show, and I think we've gone this whole time talking about streamers without saying the word Netflix, which is 100% what we need to say Netflix, because I just made the show for Netflix. I'm on a suspended overall deal for Netflix, and Netflix was the great disruptor that decided that this was going to be how we were going to do it. And then everyone else said, yeah, that seems... Let's try that. Let's see, you know, let's wear people out and see how it goes. Um, and from the first day I got to Netflix, I said, you guys are breaking your own model. I know you don't believe me that this is a problem for you and your business. I'm with you, Franklin. This is all about money. I'm, I don't even think for a second Netflix cares about my health, which deteriorated or my happiness, which was eliminated in the three months I was in Brooklyn with one other writer trying to make eight episodes of a show for them for somehow saving money on writers, you know, that that was going to be the answer to what to do, even though I told them I needed writers, even though I said, begged, and they said, no, no. Why? Because Netflix doesn't do that. The number of times I was told in the making of this first show I made for Netflix, when I got there, made the show, Netflix doesn't do that. Netflix doesn't pay that. That applied to, to your point, Billy, to actors. Netflix doesn't pay that. To writers' assistants, Netflix doesn't pay that. To writers, Netflix doesn't pay that. And I went to my agents and I went to non-writing producers and I went to everyone and I said, how come everyone keeps telling me Netflix doesn't do that? What, what world are we living in with lawyers and agents and, and non-writing producers who are supposed to be there on the side of creative to help and protect that this happened over the course of the last six, nine, 10 years. Like what world are we living in where everyone just went, well, guys, Netflix doesn't want to pay it. It's bullshit. It's a, ter it's a terrible system. You know, and I think we just, again, I just made a show for them. I'm on a suspended deal there. Um, it, we have to say the great disruptors came and broke the model for everybody. So the fact that Paramount Plus wants to do that to you and Max wants to do that to people, there is a place to lay blame. That is the first people that came in and said, this is going to be better. Let's do it this way. That company, the great disruptor, is now selling advertising. So there was a lot of negotiating you know, room where Carol was like, you guys can't go backwards. It's never going to be the heyday. No, no, no. We're not looking for the heyday. But if you want to talk about going backwards, your great disruptor in this room that changed the whole business and introduced streaming is selling advertising. And talking to me about, well, it's going to be a small part of our market and it's not that big a deal. Can I put the ad breaks in? No. Can I talk to advertising? No. Can I be involved in any way? No. 
Okay, because it's not really, there's not that many. And we know the future growth of that company because advertising works, because it's worked for decades. The great disruptors are selling ads. So we have to be, you know, we're, I mean, that's where I'm so grateful to our union for being like, our eyes are wide open here. Like, we're not wondering what's happening or maybe, gee, maybe they're not going to figure out how to make money. They're always going to figure out how to make money. And we're looking for a very reasonable piece of it. But I do think, you know, we have to say that's where it started. Netflix came in and said, let's do it this way. And it, they did it while we were working, while we were making, you know, television shows and movies for them. It actively all got, you know, rolled back while we were doing it. And that's, that's why this fight, it's one reason why this fight is so big seems clear that the answer is going to be streaming plus advertising, which is sort of the opposite of what streaming was in the first place. It's the only way it's going to make any money. Um, and it's the only way these people are going to be able to stay in business. Should the writers be there for a piece of that? Well, yeah, obviously we should be there for a piece of that. And when I go back to that number that Yalin quoted about writers being 0.59% of the budget of a TV show, could anybody make the argument that the script represents 0.59% of the quality of the show? Wouldn't you argue that the script is sort of the thing in terms of whether or not the show is going to be good? Shouldn't the pay for writers be commensurate with the importance of the script? You know, Shakespeare said the play is the thing. And that has never stopped being true. I think that fundamentally, this industry, and I think the country and the world, there's a fundamental undervaluing of the contributions that writers make to the culture, to the public good, and to the economic results of the industries in which they function. Um, I think the, 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 the deal that the AMPTP is offering reflects that, but I think more broadly, the way the industry treats writers reflects that. And so for me, I'm obviously on the side of the guild in this negotiation, but I think there's a larger conversation that frankly needs to be had for the good of the industry as a whole about our failure as an industry to, to recognize the value that writers contribute to the upside of this business and to compensate and protect writers appropriately to do that. So we need to resolve the issue of the floor, but there's a bigger conversation that needs to be had about what exists above the floor. Because we as an industry just need to be doing a lot better, not just for writer's good, not just so that Danielle and Yalin and John get paid more, but so that we as a culture have better movies and television, have a more robust, financially successful industry, and the public good that the culture is supposed to be can be reflected not just as a commercial product. Like you don't build a parking lot over a natural spring of water. And that's, that's fundamentally what we're talking about here. That seems like a good place to stop for now, back where we started, trying to look into the future with certainty, uh, which is not an easy thing to do. Will SAG strike? Very hard to say. But I know for sure that whatever SAG does, the WGA will remain steadfast in its resolve to do what's right for writers and for the business more broadly, just as writers did when they first formed the Screenwriters Guild in 1936. It's been 87 years since then, which means that the Screenwriters Guild was formed, you guessed it, four score and seven years ago. I want to thank my guests. I want to thank my producer, Jade Collins. Please join us next week when our guests will be Tallulah Bankhead and Rin Tin Tin. This is Stripe Talk. I can never get